something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. It's Bruce, and it's such a beautiful day here in L.A. And as always, I'm really glad you pulled up a chair for Table for Two. Today, we're back at the Tower Bar for another great lunch. I see the curtain moving. Da-na-na-na. The 70s were a very specific time for me watching television, and it really influenced my love for California as a kid living in New York. I'm talking about stuff like Brady Bunch, Happy Days, and Three's Company. And as it turns out, our guest, Rita Wilson, was on all those shows. Hi. 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 She was born and raised in L.A. She's married to one of the biggest movie stars in the world, a guy named Tom Hanks. And she's an incredible actress, producer, and a singer with a new album of duets called Rita Wilson, Now and Forever. She also has some great stories about California in the 70s. I ordered the loudest salad you could possibly order on the menu. (laughs) So grab a rosé because today we're having lunch with Rita Wilson. I'm Bruce Bozzi and this is my podcast, Table for Two. Welcome to Table for Two. Thank Hi. you. Hi, Thank Bruce. You Hi. It's so nice to see this you. This is super exciting because the last time I saw you, we were at the Elton John concert at the yes. Dodger Stadium. Yes. Sitting together, rocking out. Yeah, that was so good. I saw him there, I guess it was the 70s. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that. the 70s. Yeah, so we'll talk all about the mm-hmm. 70s. Um, it's so extraordinary. I still feel this way. That we are living in a time where our heroes of our youth are still playing Mm -hmm. and still out there and we can see them Mm -hmm. because so many people aren't doing what they used to do. But you have people like Elton, you have Paul McCartney, you have Bruce Springsteen, you have even Madonna now has been performing for like 40 years, you know, but... That uh, Chicago, the Eagles, those people are still out there performing. hundred percent. Jimmy Buffett, all of them. Yeah. They're all in there. Sometimes, I, and I don't think it ever gets old because 
you know, I grew up, I'm born and raised in Hollywood, yeah, I as you hear, know. I want, this is what I want you to talk to me about right now, before okay. we get to your album, which Fine. I Oh, we'll do that too. Right. So you grew up, I want to know about growing up in Hollywood, 70s, you were on some of my favorite shows that got me to California, FYI. <laughs> Happy Days, um, all of them. Happy Days, Three's Company. This is what I thought I was. I thought I was going to. You're going to go live that life. Go. You're going to find some roommates. Yes. Well, I was. I started to say that. I'm talking about those people in music that are our icons. You know, yeah. not just mine, but the world's. Is that I loved music so much that I got a job at Universal Studios. Used to have a venue called the Universal Amphitheater. And it's where the Harry Potter ride is now. Okay. But it used to be outdoors. And it was just bliss. And everybody came through there. So Elton came through there. Joni Mitchell, Carol King, Linda Ronstadt, the Eagles, Steve Martin would do comedy. You name it, they were there. And so I can't ever quite separate myself from the reverence that I have for all of those influences in music and what they felt like when I when when I saw them the first time, mm -hmm. and like my first concert was um, Led Zeppelin at wow. the Forum, oh right? Yeah. <laughs> and like, oh my God. I just want to give your listeners a little visual yeah. of that too. Okay. So I went with two girlfriends of mine who were twins, and um, Rose and Carol O'Connell. Like, if they're out there listening, <laughs> hi, hi guys, hi, hi. I'd love to see you. <laughs> um, and they were identical twins that were about. 5'11", and shocks of red hair and freckles and just, you know, fantastic physiques right. and just, they looked like gazelles. Right. And my mom used to make my clothes. So she made me an outfit that was a Hawaiian print fabric with a turquoise background and like canoes and surfboards and palm trees and, okay. you know, those kind of flowers right. on yeah. it. Yellows, reds, pinks. Right. And the pants were drawstring bell-bottoms, okay. and then full midriff exposed, <laughs> okay. and then the top was like a little short sleeve thing, but you would tie the top like right under your boobs. Right. So that was my outfit. Totally can picture it. Okay. Right. With these things called wedgies were my sandals. I'm okay. uh, sorry, corkies were my sandals. Corkies Those are like a cork, big heel? Big platform. Right. Oh, yes. Right. Big. So we were so excited running to the forum to see Led Zeppelin that I fell flat on my face no. running with my corkies. <laughs> and you suffer from beauty. You suffer from beauty. You do. You really <laughs> Got do. right back up and kept okay. running. Oh, you didn't smash anything? <laughs> no. <laughs> those are the, those, don't you think those days and having those, like, that's, it's the best to have. And you grew up at a time and like you referenced that in the 70s. Because you also grew up in Los Angeles. To me, the sweet magic spot of Los Angeles was the 60s and the 70s. I don't care sure. anyone says. And the, we also know what was happening in music in the 70s yeah. in Los Angeles with Joni Mitchell, with Mama Cass, with and the Carol ball. King right. and Stevie so Nicks. Talk to and, me about like, yeah. what, who was like, what were, were you running around uh, in like that music scene? Like you, with well, what? okay, let's just take Laurel Canyon, okay. for example. Laurel Canyon, for many people, was uh, a literal place, but also a metaphorical place. And for me, it was the same thing. I knew that Carol King and Joni Mitchell and all these people that I loved were living up there. I have two stories about Laurel Canyon that are particular. Would you like to hear them? Yes. Okay. 
One is that in high school, um, Bobby Carradine, who was David Carradine's brother, and he was an actor also, went to my high school. He was a little bit older than I was, I think. And he asked me out on a date, and he had a little Alfa Romeo, like a red sports car. So he said, let's go for a ride, you know, we'll just drive around. And I think it was a school night, so it was pretty early. But we were driving around, and he says, well, let's go up and visit my brother. Now, his brother at the time was David Carradine, and he was doing the series Kung Fu. Right, right. Remember that? Yes, I do. So I said, sure. At that time, I had eaten at home, and my he takes us up, and David was married to Barbara Hershey, who at that time was going by the name Barbara Hershey Seagull. Because Seagull, like seagull oh, right. she was a hippie. Like, exactly right, exactly right, 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 right. <laughs> so they were like okay um let's go see what my brother's doing so we show up and they had a little baby and the baby wasn't even walking it was just a crawling baby but it was laurel canyon right. they were hippies mm -hmm. it was not they had a big huge dog it was not the cleanest of yeah. kitchens let's right, say right. but the baby was on the floor and uh, I took one look around, and I was like, oh, I'm not really, like, vibing with this whole, you know, like, not really clean vibe. <laughs> right, and right. so, yeah, but the baby is there and so cute, and she's making some kind of dinner, and, you know, we all sit down to eat. And they asked me if I wanted to eat, and I said no, because I had just eaten at my parents', right? So I said, thank you very much. And they, would you like something to drink? And I said, yes. Right, what, okay. what could they do to get something to drink? Right, Bad. right. So she passes over a communal bowl of water. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is amazing <laughs> and so i did one of those fake things where you like pretend you're <laughs> sipping but you're really just like your lips are closed like mm, you know now during covid that wouldn't fly right not at all so that was one laurel canyon story um Which but really it was, epitomizes what was laurel canyon yes it really did a communal bowl of water it was but the thing was that people really believed it they they believed yeah. in this idea of um, free love mm -hmm. and uh, taking care of each other and everybody shares everything. Yeah. And so there was something to it that really was authentic. It wasn't fake. Right. I mean, they were in a private in their moment and, and home and right. that's how they were living. Right, right. So no judgment. No judgment. Just my own issues no, with I germs. Can, I kind of have the same issue. <laughs> okay, I fine. would have been like, <laughs> I could tell you stories. Yeah. The other Laurel Canyon story that's so great is, so... This is so fun. Nobody's ever asked me this stuff before. Really? So really? like we're talking about two. these stories, right? <laughs> so um, I, my, two of my best friends growing up were Catholic, and they went to a Catholic girls' school called Corvallis. It was on Laurel Canyon, just south of um, Ventura Boulevard. The building is still there, but it's not a, a girls' school anymore. Right. And one of their best friends there was Melanie Griffith. So I met Melanie when I was like 16 or 17 years okay. old, right? And Melanie was dating Don Johnson at that time already. Mm -hmm. And Don had a house in Laurel Canyon. Cher also had a house up the street from them, and she had a turquoise blue Dino Ferrari. Oh and I will, I've never asked her this, but I will one day. So happy right was now. Was that true? <laughs> Did you have a turquoise blue Dino Ferrari? Right. I believe that Cher would have had that. I think she okay. would have, 100%. So Melanie and Don were seeing each other, and we were over there one day. And it was cold. It was Don's house, but 
Melanie was still in high school, but it was also kind of random because she was still dating Don. So I don't know if she lived at home or she lived with right, Don at that very, time. It was very free love. Very free love. Yeah. So Melanie says to Don, Donnie, it's cold. Can you light a fire? <laughs> and he says, yeah, sure. So we girls are outside. We're doing something. We're laughing, whatever. We hear some noise. We don't think much of it. We come back in, and there's a gorgeous fire roaring right. in this Laurel Canyon cottage. And Melanie says, where'd you get the firewood? <laughs> <laughs> he says, I chopped up one of the chairs. <laughs> Which he did. He chopped up one of the dining room chairs. <laughs> what was happening? I don't Laura know. Canyon. So, Melanie says one night, um, we want to fix you up with somebody. I said, okay, who? She says, he's really nice. Desi Arnaz Jr. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, he's kind of cute. Yeah, that'd yeah. be fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's do it. Uh-huh. So, I was driving my parents' Barracuda, because mm-hmm. <laughs> as one does. <laughs> right. And I go pick up Melanie at Tippy's house. Right. So Tippy Hendren is yeah. Melanie's mother. She was a big star for all of you. Who might all not the Hitchcock know. movies. Yeah. Yeah. She did The Birds. Yeah. She did so many right. Hitchcock. Films. Marnie, I think she was in that yeah, too. Yeah. And um, I go pick up Melanie and she says, you know, like, I'll be right there. Somebody lets me into the house and in the backyard. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. Okay. Oh. Is a black panther. Because <laughs> Tippy was a, mm-hmm. an animal activist. Mm-hmm. And she kept this black panther or puma or whatever it is, it was all black. Right. Yeah. Big. Probably a panther, I think, yeah. All in yeah. the backyard. And I'm looking through the sliding glass. Door. I'm like, I'm not going out there. <laughs> right. I'm not going out there. <laughs> so we go. Melanie comes down. We go. We go to Desi's house to pick him up. And that's where Dawn is. Right. So, and the four of us go in one car to and a restaurant. How old is Desi at this point? Are we talking early 20s? I mean, probably... I was 17. 19, 20, so, 22. Yeah, probably like 20. Right, right, I don't know. Right, young. Right. So, um, no, he couldn't have been that young because this is part of the story. We go to this restaurant in Century City that was very popular at the time called Yamato's. Okay. It was in the what is now the Fairmont, okay. St. Regis, mm-hmm. I guess is that what it's yeah, called? But it yeah. used to be the Century Plaza yeah, Hotel. Right. So yes. it was a Japanese restaurant, and it was the kind of restaurant where it had the soji screens mm-hmm. so that every you had, could have private rooms and then they would have these soji screens that would close off the little right. rooms and right. there was a um, sunken seating with tatami mats so everybody sat on the floor and right. it was very lovely and we go in and the maitre d meets us at the restaurant and he says Mr. Arnes. So nice to see you. <laughs> Miss Minnelli has just arrived. Now, he dated Liza Minnelli, oh. and they had just broken up. Oh. So if you can see me in his face, like you're, you're, you're <laughs> telling the story with the maitre d' kind of giving the nonverbal 
we have a problem here. He's like, Mr. Arnaz. What would you like me to do? Right, right. So they put us in one of those private rooms with the soji squeezer. Okay. <laughs> it was a big thing that they had broken up, right? Right. Big thing. So we go into this room. We order food. And every time the waitress comes in, and she's in a kimono with an obi and the whole thing, uh -huh. she leaves the door open because she's coming back and forth. And every time that door was open, Desi would get up and close that door because he was so afraid Liza was going to walk by or something. So there was no second date because obviously, right? The was, there was, was no there was no chemistry, was no liftoff. Exactly, I mean, it was like drama from exactly sitting down. For the time you grew up here, everyone was sort of accessible. Lucy Arnaz told me that she would she and Desi because. Lucy lived right in the flats of Beverly Hills yeah. on Roxbury and Lexington. Yep. Yep. And she said that they would go outside and they'd have lemonade stands and they would, you know, sell cookies. And they were yeah. the kids of famous people. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart lived down the block. Jimmy, right across the street. Right. Right across the street from them. It just had that vibe. No, she said that Desi would get in the car and give people tours. Oh, here's, <laughs> let me show you. Strangers. People pull up. That's Lucy's house. He, oh, I'll show you where everybody else lives. And he get in the car with them. I'm telling you, that's the magic of L.A. in the 70s mm -hmm. where I was a New York kid watching this right. on TV going, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. I want to go there. So now you, you did shows like... Three's Company, <laughs> MASH, Brady Bunch, Happy Days, Who's the Boss, Buzz and Buddies. Those are the ones I read. I mean, all classics. Come on. Was it not just fun? It was so much fun. <laughs> it was amazing. What was, like, the best? Like, Well, you know, I loved auditioning because you would go to a studio, you'd go to an office, and all these photographs would be on the wall of all the shows that you loved. Like, the people that produced the Brady Bunch also produced... Gilligan's Island. Right. So you love that. Right. When I did my episode exactly. of the Brady Bunch, Pat Conway, for those of you who want to look it up the episode. <laughs> I do. It's when Greg had to choose between his sister and his girlfriend for cheerleader. Oh. And he was the deciding vote and chose Pat Conway. Oh. Played by yours truly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but well, the, day that, the day that I was filming, the director, Dick Michaels... He was dating Elizabeth Montgomery, who played Samantha and Bewitched. Right. So she came by the set. So I got to see her, too. Still to this day, if I go into a soundstage, that smell uh -huh. of it's so specific, it right. puts me right back like you could be in the 70s. Welcome back to Table for Two. Rita has had a very successful career in television, movies, and as a producer, but she has another passion, music. A few years ago, she decided to follow her dreams, and I want to know what inspired her latest album of duets. So Rita, you have an album out called Rita Wilson, Now and Forever. So I've been- Duets. Duets. No, it's duets. It's duets. Because, yes, it's important because I want to ask you about the people you sing with because you sing with, like, really <laughs> cool people. But you also picked really great songs of that time. So what made you choose these songs? And then I would, would like to kind of go through and, like, I just want to share who you're singing. Like, I mean, these are all songs I loved growing up with. So we have a very similar vibe 
in music. Fantastic music Just in the 70s. FYI. So for the people like, where is the love? You sing with Smokey Robinson because mm-hmm. you chose these artists to perform with. Like, what was like maybe a word or something about like Keith Urban or Willie Nelson? Like all these Jackson Brown. Like mm-hmm. this is epic. Everyone needs to download this album. Go read it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I love the seventies. My very first album was cover songs from the sixties and seventies. That album was called MFM, mm-hmm. and when. I had done a number of albums in between of original music that I wrote because I started going down to um, Nashville and writing with a bunch of people down there. And I thought, maybe it's time to revisit some cover songs again. And I started thinking, what would be fun to do? And this idea of doing duets, but of songs that haven't been done as duets, started to really formulate right, right? Mm-hmm. only where is the love had been a duet in right. the 70s with roberta flack and donny hathaway so my co-producer matt rawlings and i he's an amazing producer he's won grammys for willie nelson's gershwin album and the sinatra album i was like he knows what i'm he knows what i'm trying to go for mm-hmm. so we started talking and we started with a, a huge grab bag of music just all different kinds of songs we love this. We love that. Let's put this in. Let's put that in. And then we started going through them and saying, okay, which ones would actually be like what I was hoping, conversations between two people. Right. Oh. So then that started um, coming up uh, with, it started narrowing it down even further. And so really when I would present songs to um, artists that I was looking to work with, I would usually give them three songs and see which one they responded to the to the most. And they usually picked the one that I would have wanted them to pick. Isn't so that, that worked out great. Right. And um, it was just incredible to work with these people that I so admired, like Willie Nelson also on the album, who we did Slip Sliding Away, mm-hmm. Paul Simon's song. Yeah. And that conversation, that song in terms of a conversation took on a completely different vibe when you think, oh, this is a couple that's been together a really long time and they're talking to each other mm-hmm. about the other. Right. And I, I just loved interpreting it in a new way of looking at it. I love that you're sharing it like that because it does put a whole new sort of art to the listening of you singing with them because a song that wasn't meant to be a duet but then is sung between. Mm-hmm. So just so everyone gets an idea so this. Crazy Love with Keith Urban was super good. There's Where is the Love with Smokey Robinson. There's Slip Sliding Away with Willie Nelson. There's Let It Be Me with Jackson Brown. I mean, are we getting it here? There's Massachusetts <laughs> with Leslie Odom Jr. I mean, that's yeah. beautiful. I'll be there with Jimmy Allen. Without you, Vince Gill. I read this to Brian last night. He was like, oh, my God, Songbird with Josh Groban. How did you choose that list? Were these men that all you just had a connection with? You were like, you know, I want to work with. I did not know Willie, but Matt did because he had worked with him on the two previous albums. And Willie was the first person to sign on, which was fantastic. And, you know, if somebody like Willie signs on, then it makes the next ask very... Right. E- not very easy, but a lot easier. You know, right. like, oh, okay. Or we're talking that kind of an album. Right. <laughs> All right, fine. Right. Um, <laughs> so we just reached out to people. We were kind of lucky because it was during the 
second year of the pandemic, so still people weren't really touring, they right. weren't out, so people were home and willing to be creative, and um, we're like, okay, yeah, we'll do it. What a beautiful album, and you know, one of the things that I love about learning about you and learning about the music side of you, when you wanted to express yourself artistically through your voice and your music, and you thought maybe that chapter had passed because we all feel like as we get older, oh, you know, and you, I know you spoke with Bruce Springsteen who was like, mm -hmm. hey, no, because that, that takes courage. It was so empowering, illuminating, exciting to hear this from Bruce Springsteen, who I asked once when he was talking a lot about songwriting and I was just enraptured by it. And there was a pause in the conversation. And I said, all right, I had just started writing music. And he said, I asked him this, what makes me think that I can start writing now and you've been doing it all your life? I'm getting a really late start. And he said, because Reitz, creativity is time independent. <laughs> and that, hearing that, it, was, it just felt so true to me, and I had never heard anybody put it to me like that. Yeah. I'd never heard that concept, but it got me thinking that, yeah, who's to say that you're only allowed to be creative and be valued for that when you're in your 20s right. or you're in your early 30s or yep. whatever? Who says that there's a clock on creativity and that, oh, sorry, your time has passed right. and the clock has run out on you? I loved hearing that. Oh, it's just because I believe, Bruce, so many people are creative. And I'm reading that Rick Rubin book right now, The Creative Act, uh, A Way of Being or A Way of Living. And people, I think, when they're younger, they get different messages about what it means to be creative. Mm -hmm. So you can get the message that you have no talent, or you can get the message that is, you can't make a living being an artist. That's right. no, you can't do that. Right. Or... You have two left feet. You can't be a dancer or whatever it is. I've, I've, during my touring, when I sign, you know, CDs and things for people, I would hear all sorts of stories like that. Yeah. And that creative impulse gets shut down. One of the things that Rick Rubin said in his book, which I believe is very accurate, is that everybody's life is a creative act. Every morning we get up and we can create the day that we want to create how we look at that day, how we respond to that day, what we do for ourselves during that day or for others. And I love that philosophy that everybody does have a creative impulse. But for some reason, society doesn't really um, support that in a way. They support other ideas of like, you gotta make a living, you gotta get an education, yeah. you gotta No, whatever. you're right, they don't support it. And um, those early years specifically, when people say you can, the people that are sort of shaping you, mm -hmm. either lean in right. or lean out. And we do, we live in a, in a culture that sort of values, this is when you can do this. So youth is when you can do this. But you know, as we get older, and it's, you know, you're talking- Did you ever have anything that you wanted to do? As a kid, like when you look back on your childhood, what did you love to do and what gave you the most joy? Um, yes. So I would say looking back, and this is so specific to the time that we grew up because we're, we're peers, um, mm -hmm. is as I put chicken in my mouth, 
Really, I'm nervous <laughs> from this question. I'm like, wait, I'm going to shove my mouth with food. Um, what was it, though? It was dancing. I would love to have been pursued go. and been in a ballet class. But boys were go. not, that Correct. was not happening. That Correct. was tap dance. My sister, I went to her right. recitals. Right. You know, but that was not. So, okay. And then. You um, could take a dance class now. I know. You I really should. That. Like, why can't I? You should do it. <laughs> you know, I should do it. I asked John Bon Jovi, who uh, sat with me and uh, at lunch, and I said, you know, what did Rockstar mean to him? And not the ones that are already established rock stars, as we know them. You're right. talking about the up-and-coming right. rock stars? I was stars? like, is there a rock star today? So I'll get, I can tell you who he said. Who did he say? He said Harry Styles. That mm. to him was, mm-hmm. you know, he and kind of embodies what mm-hmm. he felt as a rock star today. I think Miley Cyrus is a rock star. Yeah. Because she can sing anything. Mm-hmm. She can move. She's so uninhibited. She's so free. I can endlessly watch her. She is. You can't take your eyes off her. Mm -hmm. You're right. And I I look at rock stars a very different thing than somebody like Beyonce or Adele who are full-on stars. Right. We know that. But a rock star is somebody who's got that bit of an edge, right? Right. In a weird way, even though this is not her genre... But I think Cardi B, in an odd way, is a rock star because right. she's such a rebel. Yeah, <laughs> just do whatever she, she wants she to really do. Is. So there's something about inhabiting that rebel. Right. It's presentation. It's yes. charisma. It's yes. like it's why when we looked at Jagger that night, we were like, oh. yeah, we're like, I mean, come on, here's this guy that just came in and. I always look at their shoes. Like, you do? what kind of shoes are they wearing? He was wearing like little black tennis shoes. He was. <laughs> I love that there are things. It's a good question. Like, I'm like, what does a rock star wear right. in real life? <laughs> He's wearing black Now, would box. there be shoes that you'd be like, ooh, I'm surprised? Like, like if, the, if there was a sock with a Birkenstock, right, that would right. give me pause. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, you taught me a word, Freudenfreud. Oh, I love that word. I learned from you. Tell everyone what Freudenfreud is. Well, you know, everybody knows the word schadenfreude. Mm -hmm. That is sort of getting pleasure out of somebody's um, failure. But I read that there is actually another word called Freudenfreud, which is being happy for someone's success. And I always approached... Everything that I did that way, yeah. even when I started, you know, first started acting and first started auditioning and people would say, don't ever tell anybody about your auditions. Right. Why? Why? <laughs> well, because they might take the part. Right. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm so different from that person or that person. If they want me, they'll hire me. Right. And if they want her, they're going to hire her. Yeah. So I never felt that somebody else's success diminished my own or made it less um, available to me. So I loved, I I can't believe everybody talks about schadenfreude, but nobody talks about Freud and Freud. Thanks for joining us on Table for Two. Though Rita has been in many movies, there's a wonderful filmmaker in particular that she really bonded with. 
the incredible Nora Ephron. You know, there's a there's a woman that I think is I know was an important person in your life who I was blessed to know, Nora Ephron. Nora clearly loved you, and she clearly knew how to write for you. Can you tell me about that relationship and the movies you made with her, and just tell us all about it? Well, all my life, I really longed for a mentor, someone who could say. For example, if I had that person in music, maybe I would have started music at a much younger age. But I, I didn't have anybody who said, oh, you love singing, you love performing. Oh, you know, you can do X, Y, Z, or there's singing classes, or you can go to this community theater and get in a musical or something. I didn't have anybody who directed me. My parents were immigrants, so they weren't really up with, you know, what kids were doing in those days. Sure. So... I met Nora because Tom was doing Bonfire of the Vanities. It was 1987. And we rented an apartment in the building in New York, the Apthorpe, where Nora and Nick lived. And Max, her son, and Jacob were still little, so they were living there, right? The windows would be open, and I would hear, like, this guitar playing going on, you know, every day. Guitar playing, guitar playing, guitar playing. Well, it turns out it was Max Bernstein, Nora's son. And he now is Taylor Swift's lead guitarist. Okay, so just saying. He did okay with those lessons. It worked out. Right. But I didn't really become friendly with Nora until, people probably don't know this, but Tom was offered When Harry Met Sally. And he turned it down because he was going through a divorce and he was very happy to be not married. And so he could not understand that a person going through a divorce would have anything other than <laughs> just like, I'm so happy. <laughs> but I loved that script. So I read that script when it came in and I just flipped out and I was like, God, this woman, Nora Ephron, she wrote, she did that movie. We really liked This Is My Life with Julie Kavner. Right. It was about a stand-up comedian at the right. age of 50. Yes. Remind me to go back to the age of 50 and Nora. Okay. okay. So I wrote Rob because I had worked with Rob and I was like, this script is so fantastic. I can't. Rob Reiner, the director. Yeah. I said, this is just mind boggling. So cut to a few years later, Tom is offered um, Sleepless in Seattle. And I loved that script so much. And it was Nora. And I ran into her at a party at Linda Opst's house. Okay. Now, Carrie Fisher. Mm -hmm. It's all very I know. It's, it's all familial. Yeah. Carrie Fisher was in This Is My Life, and she was in When Harry Met Sally. Yes. And I just loved how Nora wrote for her. Right. So I ran into her at the party, and I said, Nora, if nobody, if, if you're not going to cast Carrie in the role of the best friend, which was the Rosie O'Donnell part, right. mm -hmm. I would love to audition for it. She calls me in for an audition. It's like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. So I go in an aud audition, and I didn't get the part. They gave it to Rosie. But Nora offered me the role of Susie, this other character. And I was like, oh yeah, that was a really good part of the script. I really liked that character. There's a big monologue in there. Right. So I ended up doing that monologue from a, 
about the movie An Affair to Remember. And that ended up being one of the most fun, most wonderful acting experiences I've ever had. Then soon after that, she offered me a part in a movie called Mixed Nuts mm -hmm. with Steve Martin yeah. and Madeline Kahn and Richard Kind and Gary Shanley. John Stewart is in it. Parker Posey is in it. Adam Sandler, Juliette Lewis. It was an incredible cast. Wow. Yeah. Liev Schreiber's first role. Okay. So then we did that movie and, uh, you know, sadly it wasn't, successful when it came out mm -hmm. but now it's become this weird cult favorite course, because right. it's like, like so it's, right, it's a right. weird movie but it's a really good weird movie yeah. <laughs> let me go back to the 50 yeah so Nora <clears throat> so 50, right on my 50th birthday because Nora actually became like one of my best friends and she said on my 50th birthday as she was toasting with a glass of champagne because she loved champagne here's to turning 50 Great things can happen to you after you turn 50. I didn't direct my first movie until I was 50. Mm. She died at 71. Look what she did in that 21 yep. years. Wow. It's really mm. important to hear that. Yes. To hear you tell, it's just very, and I mean really receive that. Because there was no clock on creativity for right. her. Right. She was a journalist, don't forget. Yeah. She was a hardcore journalist. Yep. And then she decided she was going to write scripts. Right. She wrote Silkwood for crying out yeah, loud. It's right. a very serious movie. Yeah. I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine. He's a Hindu priest. And we were talking about purpose. I asked him, well, wait a minute, how do you, how do you know what your purpose is? Like you can, cause you know, we were having conversations. I want to do this. I want to do that. He goes, you know, purpose is very simple. You ask yourself this question. What is it that I can still do on my deathbed? That will be my purpose that has nothing to do with engaging. And you know, I need three people to do it or I have to have a certain, you know, environment to do it. And when he said that, I knew exactly what my purpose was. And it was, it sounds so simple, but to bring joy. Mm -hmm. And I want, I want to be able to put stuff like that out into the world. You know, that's where my head is at. That's where my, I find the most satisfaction out right. of doing stuff like that. Well, I love that you said that because when I was thinking about you, joy was the word that came up. And I feel... That is so nice, though. <laughs> no, but it's the intention. You know, I do want to know about what it felt like to be, because I think it's so great, to your experience when you were playing uh, Roxy in Chicago. Like, was that a good experience to be on Broadway? Was that a dream? Was that like... Oh, my God. This was a Nora moment also. Really? Yes. Because I got offered to do Chicago. And Nora said, well, you know, you should go into town and see the show and make sure it's in good shape. <laughs> and what she meant was, you know, is it still good? Right. You know, is it falling apart? Mm -hmm. It's been on for so long. How good could it still be? Right. So I go into town with Tom and my daughter Elizabeth to see the show. And... At the, it, it's fantastic. It's so good. Right. 
And at the intermission, I turned to Tom and Elizabeth and I'm like, like, there's no way I'm doing this. <laughs> because? Terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> I said, there's no way I'm doing this or that I can do this. Right. And they looked at me like I was nuts. Like, what? Are you kidding? You are so doing this? Yep. And I'm like, no, no, I am not. No, you're doing it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I was terrified. But it brought me, talk about connecting dots. Honestly, this is why we have to be brave and do things that are out of our comfort zone. My dance captain, Greg Butler, who is still a friend today, he taught me so much about courage. He taught me so much about patience, about what we do to ourselves in our heads that have nothing to do with what we actually can be doing in real life, in real time. And he was very funny. But after the play was finished, he introduced me to the woman who changed my life because she was the one who said, offered me the idea that I could be a songwriter. And her name is Cara Diogordi. And she wow. was a songwriter and she had done Chicago because she was a judge on American Idol and she's fantastic, right? right? As a, but she was badass, went to Duke. She was a songwriter, had hit songs. Uh, was way more than what she just was as a judge on Idol. But she ended up doing Roxy. And Greg said to me, you need to meet Cara Diaguardi. I think you guys are going to hit it off. So after she did the play, I can't remember how long, he introduced us. Mm -hmm. We met. And in that meeting, the first meeting, she said to me, well, so what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. I probably would give anything if I could write a song like you, but I can't. She goes, why can't you? Mm. I was like, well, because I don't write music. I don't read music. I'm not a musician. You know, I play an right. instrument. I don't do anything. She goes, neither do I. Do you have something you want to say? Yeah. And when she said that, mm -hmm. I was like, I, literally, I got a, like a butterflies in my stomach and kind of like that pit. I'm like, yeah, I, I totally have something I want to say. She goes, I want to write your songs with you, first two songs. Wow. And she did. And that opened the door to songwriting. Right. And if I had not done Chicago, yeah, it's I amazing. would not have met Kara. Nope. I would not have become a songwriter. And I would not be here sitting here talking to you about my new album. As we finish our lunch, I'm thinking of all the great things Rita has done in her career and the courage she found to start a new chapter in music. And what comes to my mind is the theme song that used to end the Carol Burnett show in the 1970s. And it was, I'm so glad we had this time together just to have a laugh or sing a song. And today, I don't know about you, but I've had many laughs and we've actually sang songs. So let's check in one more time with the incredible Rita Wilson. I think being a woman, at least in the generation that I grew up in, was it was very easy to be visibly invisible. And because I was taught, you know, don't make waves. You're here to please people, make everybody feel good, make everybody, you know, not feel threatened. So I think that it takes, at least for me, it took a really long time to sort of I like to say, find my voice. Yeah. And, and I mean that literally and metaphorically. Yep. 
And I do believe, like I said earlier, that people know who they are at a very young age, but it gets sort of buried yep. if you don't have the right circumstances. You know, I still feel that way sometimes, right. you know. Yeah. I, I still feel that way. It doesn't way. go away fully. No, and and it's so ingrained in your upbringing and everything. Yeah. But I, I, I try to be aware of it and try not to let it get <laughs> out, of, out of the way, you know, like too you far out to of the way. You have to catch it. Yeah, catch you know, it. You catch it. And I think you said, and I say the same thing, it's finding your voice. And I think what Nora said, this is also coming back. I think our conversation sort of, as we end, it's like at 50, we found out life's, life begins. When do you find yes. your voice? When, who do you know who yes. you are? And it becomes with age and wisdom. And I just want to thank you. Thank you. For coming here and having lunch. I want everyone to... Download Rita Wilson, Now and Forever, Duets, because it really, it's just a beautiful album. Thank you so You're much. You're a beautiful person. <laughs> it's joy. I hope everyone who pulled up a chair, go have a great day. I wish everyone could have lunch with you because uh, you have the best questions. It was effortless and so much fun. Thank and you. You are gifted at this. Thank you. Now, the only thing we need to add is a couple of dance lessons. Okay, let's do that. There you go. (laughs) Okay, everyone have a great day. (laughs) Table for Two with Bruce Bozzi is produced by iHeartRadio, 737 Park, and Airmail. Our executive producers are Bruce Bozzi and Nathan King. Table for Two is researched and written by Bridget Arsenault. Our sound engineers are Paul Bowman and Alyssa Midgaff. Table for Two's LA production team is Danielle Romo and Lorraine Virez. Our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our talent booking is by Jane Sarkin. Special thanks to Amy Sugarman, Uni Cher, Kevin Uvain, Bobby Bauer, Allison Cantor Graber, Barbara and Jen, and Jeff Klein, and the staff at the Tower Bar in the world famous Sunset Tower Hotel. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.